What's Up podcast, episode 207 is about to begin, and this one is with the amazing Eric Helms. Uh, This is the second time that he's been on my show, so if you haven't heard him just yet, hit the first episode with him. In the earlier episodes, you might have to scroll down a little bit, but this is a more of a Q&A format of a podcast episode because when I posted it online we got a, a influx of questions and I think I almost hammered out all of them so if you were one of those lucky people on Facebook and Instagram who sent in a question your question is answered on the show so without further ado here's Eric Helms I'm good with that Q&A is fun yeah because so, um, I haven't have already had you on my show I like I've done this with a couple people who've come back on my show where you know, I'm just going to hit record and we just start chatting and then we'll just see where the conversation goes if you're cool with that. Yeah, it works for me, man. Yeah. So, like, kind of like the first question I would love to get you to answer is, like, give us an update of what you've been working on. Because, like, I think it's been, I think, a year now since I've had you on my show and, like, what ha- what has happened in this past year for you? Yeah. Well, it's cool to be back on first, so thanks for that. I yeah. do appreciate it. Um so the past year, 2018 was uh, was pretty big. Um, I had the opportunity to collaborate with uh, with Omar Issa from 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 Kaizen, so that was pretty cool. Uh, that was mid year. We put together a course on called called Nutrition for Lifters, um, which I just really enjoyed doing because it allowed me to create uh, video content that was a little more. I wouldn't say easier to digest in terms of the the content, but more straightforward and to the point, more action oriented, um, and and application based compared to like my books or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we also finished my books, uh, the second edition of the Pyramids, which we then launched in January. But that was, um, I'd say, it's a big part of last year. I wrote it all that that in that time period, um, and then uh, solidified my position at AUT as a research fellow. So now I get to work with uh, PhD students and master students. Uh, I really enjoy that mentoring process. So those are all those are all big things. And then uh, starting in December, I actually started my uh, first contest prep since 2011 wow. for competing again in natural bodybuilding. So cool. I'm excited about that too. I really, um, I really love the process in a kind of weird masochistic way, yeah. but you know, just that that struggle, I think, is something that gives me some meaning. So that, those are those are kind of the big ones that are top of mind. But there's more than that too. I travel a lot. Yeah, so. I think the last time I had you on my show, I think I asked you like if we're gonna do the next show, and you were kind of like unsure. But uh, what what kind of made you want to go back into that again? Yeah, I think um, it just took me some time to 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 feel like I had the the space and and energy to do it. Um, so I, I've always wanted to get back on stage, but I knew that, uh, I didn't have the same motivations I did before. So, um, as much as I preach, you know, like, like balance and, uh, you know, trying to be the best version of yourself and focusing on you versus you, or even just the process, not necessarily even beating yourself. Cause Inevitably, we all get to a point where we can't be better than our previous selves, at least physically. Um, I I think I've been better at kind of walking that walk later now 
um, as I've had uh, probably a revised why, if you will, with why, why I lift, why I'm interested in competing. And I think some of the artistic side of bodybuilding, some of the self-expression, um, and some of really actually truly focusing more on the journey unless I'm trying to get a pro card or things like that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the, the, my priorities and, and how big of an emphasis each one of those, uh, all the reasons I compete has shifted to the point where um, it really is something that I'm doing a lot more for myself and for expression and, and finding meaning and being part of, um, you know, I think a, a practice that, that, that gives me a sense of purpose. So anyway, um, I think getting to that place mentally facilitated me starting prep, uh, and making it all, all worth it. I say that now, but you know, like it's, it's end of, end of January and I've got competitions lined up all throughout the year. So we'll see when I'm hungrier, if I still feel that way. (laughs) Actually, this would be a good question though. It's like for someone who's kind of new to that, you know, I want to step on stage and they haven't done it yet. Like, how much time and dedication would they have to like set aside in their week? Like if you had to put numbers of hours of like training, meal prep, planning and stuff like that, like what would someone need to kind of expect or like kind of set aside if they're, you know, working a full-time job and things like that? You know, it it really depends on what their level of experience is and, um, and how well they've habituated kind of the quote-unquote bodybuilding lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you take someone who's a first-time competitor, um, you know, they probably should be, you know, weighing and tracking all their food, um, locking it on my, on my fitness pal or some other thing, um, you know, measuring, t- taking, you know, daily weigh-ins uh, and having target weight loss goals and then taking pictures every week, comparing them, and then either with a coach's help or on their own, um, first time competitor, I definitely advise a coach, uh, making decisions about their progress and seeing how far they are to their first show. Um, if you take a much more experienced competitor, they kind of know what their meal plan, uh, or like standard way of eating looks like to reach, uh, fat loss and, and what's the appropriate, you know, amount of weight they should be losing at given times, how hard it should feel. They know what to expect in terms of difficulty and, um, they know what to do when they hit plateaus and a lot of that, it can be a lot more automated. They might just make small tweaks to their, their current nutrition plan. They know how much cardio they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a difference between even the same amount of work that someone is doing in their fourth, fifth, sixth season than their first, um, because you don't have to make decisions as much about all those things. You just start doing it. Um, so for me, um, meal prep and eating takes the same, maybe slightly more time because I'm not going out to eat. Um, so I'm just cooking a few more times per week. But, um, but I mean, hell, you spend just as much time waiting in a restaurant as you do to, to, to cooking. So yeah. probably the same amount of, of time away from other things, but you know, it's different. I don't know. Some people don't consider cooking fun. Some people do. So maybe it's, it's, it's better. I don't know. But anyway, training, uh, resistance training takes, the same amount of time, if not slightly less than you would in the off season as a bodybuilder. Um, because at a certain point you're probably going to uh, cut your volume a bit. Um, and the only real additional time, uh, would be potentially added cardio. Um, and I think that's pretty individual. Um, it can get to the point where you're doing, you know, 
30 minutes of cardio daily or, or, or up to an hour maybe. Um, so you can expect an added on average, like three to 10 hours per week uh, of cardio. Um, maybe not that much if, if you're, if you're primarily doing it via nutrition, but, um, yeah, I mean, if you take someone who's never lifted weights before and they decide to do a show, which you should absolutely not do, then yeah, you're adding, you know, seven to 10 hours of lifting weights, three to seven hours, three to 10 hours of, of, of cardio. And then, you know, meal prepping and tracking your food and all that, it sounds like a whole new part-time job. But if you're taking an off-season bodybuilder who is, you know, eating and and, and tracking and and monitoring their nutrition and training already, uh, the only additional hours are the added cardio. Um, So in terms of the hours on paper, not that much. In terms of the added headspace and how much time it takes up, um, it can be... Uh, quite a bit, although I find that the biggest antidote to the hunger and some of the self-doubt and the stress that comes along with it is just being busy and like focusing on everything except bodybuilding and just taking your boxes off and um, assessing your physique and uh, stuff like that on a a regular schedule rather than just anytime you walk in front of a mirror or anything you think about it. So I think some of that requires... Um, kind of like delayed gratification and some discipline around what you look at and what you expose yourself to. Nice. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you is like, what's exciting you in the research field right now that you're like, holy shit, this is going to be awesome. Hmm. You know, I, I think research is always interesting on the, on the new horizons that are going to be coming out. And, um, so there's, there's, there's some stuff that, that I think is going to be pretty cool coming out pretty soon. So uh, Jackson Pios, uh, good guy. He, he's a PhD student at University of Western Australia. He's conducting, to my knowledge, the only data using diet breaks on athletes, uh, comparing that to people not using diet breaks. So that's going to let us know if some of the data that uh, Byrne collected in 2017 is more or less effective um, using a different population, resistance-trained athletes. Athletes, and then also instead of the two-two setup of two low low weeks, two diet break weeks, they're going to have a three-one, uh, which is probably closer to what would be used by uh, by athletes and dieters. So I think that would be really interesting to see if that's as or less effective, considering the diet breaks are shorter, less frequent, but we have a leaner population who uh, probably needs to actually replenish glycogen more regularly and maintain performance and all those things that you would think would benefit from the diet break. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then I'm just excited to see, uh, the general research that comes out in the next couple of years, because there's a lot of people involved in, uh, physique sport and strength sport now who are also involved in academia compared to even just a few years ago. And that's grown substantially over the last few years. So I'm, I'm just really excited to see things like, you know, replication of, of certain uh, studies since we have more robust data around it, uh, more opportunities for meta-analysis, and uh, getting a little more refinement around variables of both nutrition and training. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. Sweet. The last question for me, too, I'm kind of interested if you've kind of read up on the – because I know Precision Nutrition right now is, like, revamping their intermittent fasting book that they posted, I think, like, 10 years ago. And I was talking to Chris and Scott Dixon that they've been like just shuffling through all the research on fasting in general. So I don't know if you've kind of dabbled in any kind of fasting research. And if you have, it'd be kind of cool to get your thoughts on it. 
Um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, I, I mean, I've looked at I've looked at a fair amount of intermittent fasting research. Um, that said, I think. I'm not the person who is best for for some of the the practice around it because I've had you know I have a few clients who use it I've experimented with myself but it's been years because it, it wasn't really right up my alley and this is we're talking like a pure 16-8 or yeah. or every other day like um, I do tend to eat a little less in the morning and then kind of backload my nutrients but it's not fasting like I I wake up and I might have like a piece of fruit and a protein bar kind of thing yeah. and then not eat for another three hours. But, um, but that's not technically fasting. So I think, I think intermittent fasting, um, I would, well, I'd love to see more research. I think, um, what people are interested in outside of what they've kind of always been interested in of optimizing body composition and making a leaner physique more sustainable by, uh, modifying their behaviors and making it easier to eat less calories, which is essentially, what intermittent fasting is in terms of its benefits, um, but it doesn't work for everyone. Um, I would love to see more research around it, are there actual like life extension benefits, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon yeah. um, because you have to actually watch someone over an entire lifespan. So unless someone started an intermittent fasting uh, life extension observational study in a large cohort that lived their entire 80 or 90 years of life doing IF versus not, and they're all going to die within the next year, so we can see who, who lived the longest, uh, then that's not going to come out anytime soon. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think people are very excited about, like, rodent data and, and, and markers and things like that, and I, I think those are typically extrapolate quite poorly to humans, so I'd love to see, um, you know, more data on that. I don't know that that's going to happen, but... Um, yeah, I think in general, intermittent fasting should be seen as a potential tool. Like if you have a very, if you're typically not hungry in the morning and you're busy and you, you could be distracted and you can focus on, on life and then it makes it a lot easier for you to adhere to a calorie-restricted diet when you have bigger meals. If all those things converge, then it may be a lot better for you just to delay breakfast, which is really all it is. Um, and... Um, if you are a someone who's interested in like optimizing body composition and maximizing muscle retention on a diet, you can still accomplish that same thing. And instead of just having coffee in the morning, you can have like a protein shake, you know. Um, and I had they even have like caffeine and and, uh, and protein shake like pre-made mixes. But you could just freaking have a scoop away and a caffeine tab and do it a lot cheaper. And then you know it, you're you're still fasting. Uh, in terms of the experience, and I think all the effects would be so similar uh, as to be the same effectively in practice, um, despite the fact you're getting like 100 calories. Like, who cares? Um, that's not going to break your – I mean, you're breaking your fast, but the fast isn't magic. So once you yeah. get away from that idea, you see like, okay, well, if my goal is to maximize muscle retention, there's a theoretical rationale for not going, you know, 16 hours without any protein, so maybe I'll have a scoop away in the morning. And that's the only modification I make to it. That would probably be a better one for someone who wants to uh, keep as much muscle as possible. Fair enough. Um, so let's do a little Q&A that we got from Facebook and Instagram. So the first one is how much slower will someone's metabolic rate be after losing a significant amount of weight compared to someone who is naturally at that weight? Is it possible to increase it to a normal level or will it always be slower? That's a good question. 
Um, and we have specific data on this. We have um, studies where someone or a group has either been uh, a short period or a long period post weight loss and whether they've maintained uh, that weight or regained it. Um, and on average, you do see um, uh, some basically when you first lose weight, let's say you reduce your body weight by 10%, um, you very well might see around a 10 to 15% on average uh, reduction in energy expenditure. Now, that's not necessarily metabolic rate. Um, I think it's useful to talk about this in terms of total daily energy expenditure because that's what matters. Um, that's often called quote unquote metabolic adaptation or probably more correctly adaptive thermogenesis because it happens in compartments that aren't just your, your metabolic rate. Um, and there's some data suggests that a lot of it actually comes from neat non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is not something completely under your control. It's not just sitting down more often or, or, or deciding I'm going to never take the stairs again. It has stuff, stuff to do with, uh, like postural control, uh, and calorie expenditure in a lot of ways that are much more subconscious. So anyway, uh, a decent answer would be 10 to 20 percent is, is would cover most people. But if you were to extrapolate those numbers out to say one, two, or even three standard deviations, if you want to cover 99 percent of people, some people are going to be burning only two thirds of the uh, calculated or expected amount of energy at their body weight. Uh, those are the the unfortunate folks who who probably really struggle with nutrition and maintain maintaining it afterwards because uh, their their calories have to get so low uh, even after weight loss. On the other flip side, if you go the other direction of those standard deviations, some people are going to see a we're going to be totally pr predicted by the equation or just slightly below it. So uh, the answer is that it's hugely variable. Um, and it does improve after you've maintained that weight. It doesn't go away completely. So it might be, say, 15% versus 8% a year later once you've regained, um, not regained the weight, but regained the calories and spent time uh, not dieting. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a very large component of the uh, quote-unquote maladaptations we see from dieting don't just come from the process of getting leaner. They come from what you have to do to get there. And they do scale with the severity uh, and the, I'll say, the, the subjectively poor approach you do or don't take. So there's um, the that study that gets cited a lot that I think is kind of headline-catching and scary, but uh, the, I think it's persistent metabolic adaptation and a biggest loser competitor or something like that. I can't remember what it is, but this person lost... I mean, if you think about the energy deficit they had to lose the amount of weight they did in the time they had, it's huge, um, and it's definitely not advised. And from what we know about energy availability and how that affects you, if you are generating a, just a massive deficit and you sustain it for a long period, um, that, that, has a, that takes a toll, um, and uh, the behaviors that go along with it and thinking, like, oh, I need to maintain some semblance of this to maintain weight probably keeps you you in this uh, low energy availability state, despite the fact that you might now be at calorie uh, maintenance. So, you know, our bodies can can maintain weight at various levels of, of energy intake. And ideally, you want to be maintaining your weight at the highest amount possible. And coming in and out of your diet periodically as reasonable with diet breaks 
and maybe even using refeeds to kind of mitigate these metabolic adaptations or adaptive thermogenesis as much as possible. So I would say if you do everything right, if you're losing it, say, if you're lean, uh, 0.5 to 1% of body weight per week, if you're maintaining a high protein intake, if you're doing resistance training, if, say, every four to eight weeks you take a week off of dieting at maintenance, uh, and then if once the diet's over, you increase calories as high as you can without gaining weight and, and kind of push that envelope a little bit just to see what your limits are, uh, I would say even in the worst-case scenario, if you went from uh, being you know with obesity and you come all the way down to a, a more quote unquote normal body weight, um, you might not you might only be um, you know five to ten percent less than would be expected. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you might see a persistent fifteen to twenty percent less if you did everything quote unquote wrong. So uh, that that's the answer is it's individual, but also affected by how you do it. Um, so doing it intelligently and being uh, not only patient, but also systematic and uh, giving yourself breaks and trying to incur the least amount of um, stress in the process is important. That doesn't mean you can't go quick initially, you know, and it doesn't mean someone who has a lot of body fat can't lose a little faster than the rate I suggested earlier. I think there's nothing wrong with losing closer to 1.5 to 2% of your body weight per week if you have, you know, a pretty substantial amount of body fat to lose. Awesome. I love how you give like really detailed answers. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I don't want to just say something that uh, doesn't cover all the caveats. But, yeah. It's like, yeah, it sucks. Next question. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, you're, you're gonna have to burn as many calories in anyway. Let's go to the next one. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, so the next one's kind of long. So bear with me. Um, I would like to know his thoughts on body recom- uh, recomposition at maintenance for the general pop slash non-physique competitor population. Does he believe that is a good option for women, especially older women, 40 plus, that just want to look good by the pool in the summer? Can you really build muscle and change the shape of your body uh, eating at maintenance? For example, if after a year of training hard using progressive overload and maintaining the same body weight uh, within a few pounds to account for daily fluctuations, will you see more muscle mass definition and feel more more firm and have less jiggle in your wiggle? (laughs) Less jiggle in your wiggle. I love it. Uh, the short answer is yes, and I think it's actually pretty damn effective. Um, the The thing with body recomposition is that it is like basically eating at or around maintenance. Um, it's the, 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 it does produce slightly slower changes, but the lower your quote unquote training age is, um, the lower your uh, your threshold for adaptation is, uh, and the more capacity you have to see changes. Um, you know, so for example, um, in every study we have that I'm aware of, of untrained individuals where we manipulate their training, we give them a, a resistance training program, but we don't put them into a calorie surplus intentionally, uh, they either uh, gain body weight from lean body mass with roughly no change in body fat, uh, or a, a similar change in body fat to keep it at the, at the same body fat percentage, right? So there might be a slight increase to keep it as the same proportion of your body, or we see a simultaneous loss of body fat uh, with muscle gain. Um, and that occurs in all of them that I'm aware of without intentionally going into a surplus. Sometimes that means they do just 
start eating in a surplus as they get more active and they get hungrier. Um, but it's not beyond what's appropriate for what they're doing. And uh, that's technically not recomping, but it's not like you sat down and went, right, I've got to eat another 500 calories. I'm going to go buy additional food or I'm going to get a weight gainer or I'm going to track macros to make sure I'm in a surplus and weigh myself. Um, it, that I might, I think that's in all practical terms that, that that is a recomp, just training and not worrying about trying to eat eat more and then letting the adaptations happen. Um, and there will be a certain point where um, weight loss slows down because you're not gaining muscle at the same rate and therefore you're also not creating as much of an energy sink and therefore you're not as hungry, so you're not eating as much and you're not gaining weight as quickly. And you can just let that happen naturally. And I think especially for someone who's not a competitor, um, that's a really reasonable way to go. Uh, I think the trade-off for a competitor makes sense because you're going to be literally competing uh, based on how much muscle mass you carry and how little body fat you carry. So going through a period where you gain more body fat than you would like uh, to try to get some slight advantage and be able to put on muscle mass because it becomes, like I said, harder and harder uh, to gain muscle mass when, when if any chips are stacked against you as you get more advanced. I think it makes sense. It's still not anything crazy. Like I recommend gaining 1% of your body weight per month as an advanced natural or some, somewhere around there. Um, but for a, uh, general population person, the differences between doing say bulk cut cycles and just lifting weights and, and eating yeah, a healthy diet, we'll say without any kind of more restriction or, or, uh, addition than that. I don't think it's worth it for most people, uh, and they have to be like super, super serious about uh, bodybuilding into the same way that a competitor is. They just don't want to get on stage, and that's the only time I'd recommend it. So I think for for most people, um, it, it just simply is not necessary. Um, on the flip side, I would say though, if you're someone who is constantly restricting and constantly dieting, that's not the same thing. Where general population people get into trouble is when they're con they're constantly trying to diet or get a little tighter, or they have what I would describe as not a great relationship with food, uh, where they are in this kind of cyclical yo-yo dieting state, and then they're also lifting weights and hoping they'll build muscle. That's not a recomp. That's not eating and maintenance. Um, I think you need to focus on getting into a, a a better relationship with your food first, and then that that actually becomes possible. But if you're in a a frequent calorie deficit, you know, and restricting things and not getting enough protein uh, and, and doing a lot of cardio, that will inhibit your ability to, uh, to quote unquote, recomp. So I think if I take the assumption that this is someone who has a, a healthy, balanced diet but doesn't want to put, in, put, a, put a surplus uh, in place, uh, and they are, like they said, only been training for a year. I think that's totally fine, and it will make make improvements. It might be slightly slower than a competitive bodybuilder going through uh, organized cycles of surplus and deficit, um, but the trade-off probably is not worth it. All right, fair enough. Uh, so the next one, uh, how much does a diet break help mid-prep? How much does a deload help? Should you do these at the same time? I think you can, and it's not a bad idea. Diet breaks seem to help a great deal. Um, I've used them with, yeah, I think probably hundreds of competitors now, um, which is kind of cool now that I reflect on that. Um, and um, most of the time, 
if I use them in a very reactive way, like if I give, if the competitor has enough time, which means if, 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 if they listen to me, they do, if they were hard line, they're like, no, I got to do the show where it's my only one. Uh, even though I suggested they need more time to diet for it. So if we don't have enough time and we don't have time to, to, to have plateaus and work around them, uh, my standard use of a, of a diet break is, um, maybe the first or second plateau, like the first plateau, sometimes just like, oh, we just need to diet harder. But the typically the second plateau, uh, a competitor hits, my response is not to cut further, but to give them a week long diet break. And more often than not coming back from the diet break, we see some fat loss on the same numbers that they were on before the plateau for at least another three to four weeks, if not longer. Um, so that's kind of cool, I think. Um, and I see that the competitors who use diet breaks consistently seem to transition better to the off season, um, seem to have a easier time making transitions between the off season and the in season, um, probably because they've, they've gotten the opportunity to be on lower and higher calories, but still have structure multiple times. Um, and they seem to carry a fuller look, maintain a little more muscle mass, um, and, and all the above is, is every, the whole process is better because they've been circling the drain for less of the time, uh, and as a net, uh, dieting phase, uh, typically they can keep their calories higher, which means less of those, uh, energy, energy, uh, deficiencies, uh, symptoms is the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, and then the deload aspect has to do with a, you should do it. Yes. Um, especially during a, during a contest prep phase, the deload has to do with managing fatigue. So if we kind of use that basic two factor model, when you train, you get both fitness and fatigue. Um, but you're, you're getting fatigue outside of the weight room because of life stress and you're not getting as much recovery to mitigate it through your normal processes of eating enough and not necessarily doing as much cardio, et cetera. Uh, you're not as well recovered. So it's really important to have regular regular deloads during prep, in my opinion, to manage that fatigue. Um, and uh, something that I do with, with a lot of people is I will have deloads be a little more reactive in the off season. So they, they come when there are symptoms of being beat, beaten up. Uh, however, in, during contest prep, I keep them on a semi-regular regular schedule, like every fourth or fifth week or something like that. So um, the times when you want to make them coincide is when you are just really, really wrecked from prep. Um, you, you're stalled, you're looking worse, uh, you're stressed, uh, your, your strength is dropping. And in general, you feel a lot of diet fatigue. That's, that's a great time to take a deload and then also eat at maintenance to dump, dump diet fatigue, dump training fatigue, which are very much the same thing and, and, and look the same and feel the same except for hunger, um, and come back into it nice and fresh. I think that, that, that's something definitely to do and just don't, let your fear get in the way of thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm losing muscle mass anyway uh, because I'm dieting, so a deload's going to make it worse, and then I need to lose fat, and a diet break is, is going to stop that. Um, you're going to end up exacerbating the problem more uh, because you have to manage uh, the fatigue and the stress that comes from, from, from a diet to get in the, the right condition without looking like you're very stringy at the end. So if you want to maintain your muscle mass and your sanity, I think that's definitely – there's. A uh, good idea to do diet breaks, good idea to do deloads, and they should coincide sometimes if you are really racking up a lot of fatigue. 
Awesome. Uh, so the next one, is there a recommended maximal amount of sets per workout? Or should you add on sets as long as you're able to recover from it? I've been running a program what initially had about 20 to 24 sets in one workout, but over the last month have added one to three exercises per workout, bumping the total amount of sets two to 30 range. Is this okay as long as I feel I'm able to recover and progress? That's a good question. So first, I would say that um, there, you do get to a point where there's diminishing returns on the number of sets you do in a given workout. Um, we have actually data that goes back decades on this, uh, looking at uh, two-a-day training. Uh, when you see some outcomes in well-trained strength athletes that are better uh, when they do two workouts in a day instead of one with matched volume. So they're getting meals and recovery time between them, and all of a sudden, uh, the, 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 their, their adaptations are, are more efficient, which shows you that, yeah, if you do too much in one session, you're going to kind of get this point where the quality starts to, to drop off, uh, and therefore the adaptations get worse, and you are having to recover from more acutely. Um, so I think that data there shows that, yes, concept of you can do too much in one session, which I think is pretty intuitive if we all think about it, um, is, is, is true. Um, there's not like a hard, fast rule. I think it very much depends on what type of training you're doing, uh, how good a shape you're in, and your individual recover, recovering recuperative capacities and your lifestyle that supports that. So um, like the, the question asker uh, kind of hinted at, it is based on how it feels. Like if if you're feeling fine, you're not like, it's not turning into a Rocky montage and you can still bang on sets, you're motivated to train uh, and you haven't seen any large drops in strength on similar movements, then go for it. Um, that said, I think as a general rule, um, based on what we've seen from frequency studies, there does seem to be a measurable impact of going from training each muscle group once per week to twice after that, the effect is much smaller and less clear and largely dependent on manipulating volume within the week. Um, so it seems like with the kind of volumes that are done or are recommended, um, training each muscle group only once per week is probably around reaching too much for most people. So if you're doing 10 to 20 sets for a single muscle group in a single workout, that's probably not advised. You'd probably want to split that up into at least two workouts where you spread that volume over it. So for example, instead of doing, you know, chest on Monday, back on Tuesday, arms on Thursday and legs on Friday, you might simply go to an upper lower, upper lower, uh, so that uh, you, you can have two opportunities to split up that chest work, uh, back work, shoulder work, arm work, leg work, et cetera. Um, going from there to an upper lower, upper lower, upper lower off, and then having even less volume per body part per session, um, that probably won't make as, as big of a difference as that first jump. So I would say so long as you're training each muscle group twice per week uh, and you are increasing the uh, number of sets really only when you need to, like if you're not progressing uh, and you are monitoring your motivation and your quality of training and your performance within a workout, then, then, then it's probably okay to increase sets so long as you're, you're focusing on all those things. Sweet. Um, so the next one is if somebody is training early in the morning and he has not 
so many calories to play with, when is it more important to eat a meal containing protein and carbs pre or post training? Yeah, I mean, I think the carbohydrate aspect of this is pretty individual. There's very inconsistent data as to whether or not um, pre-workout carbohydrate has an impact on resistance training performance. Um, and this makes sense if you look at it like resistance training, um, it, like if you do a, a high volume bodybuilding workout, at most you're going to be depleting local glycogen of those muscles by like 40%, which is going to get completely replenished even on like a moderate carbohydrate diet, even in a slight deficit by 24 hours later. Um, and if we kind of go back to the question I just answered before that, you're probably not going to be training that muscle group in most scenarios, at least for another 72 hours or maybe 48. So um, the rate limiting factor of glycogen is not really the rate limiting factor. And it takes a while for glycogen to get stored anyway. So even waking up first thing in the morning, um, while your like liver glycogen will be a little lower, your muscle glycogen will be fine. Um, so you probably just want to make sure blood glucose is stable and get in there. Uh, and that can, that can happen with just having protein, you know? So I would say if you're limited on calories and you have to train first thing in the morning, I would probably just go in on a scoop of whey. Um, since you have been not with a meal for, for the entire sleeping period. Um, it's the reason I recommend that. And I don't worry too much about peri-workout protein at other times is because you're almost always in the postprandial state, the, the period while you're of, of digestion. So if you think about it, if you're having four meals per day, let's say you eat at 8 a.m. noon, uh, you know, 4 p.m. and then 8 p.m. and you go to bed, the, the, the digestion time for most foods and the fact that you're eating mixed meals means that for all, all the time until you're maybe three hours and three or four hours into your sleep schedule, you have circulating amino acids there. So the build and repair process can start immediately if you train any time during the waking hours. Now, the one time that's not the case is if you were to wake up and go right to the gym with nothing in you because uh, you've had you know half a nighttime of sleep of not having uh, much in the way of amino acids circulating. So it's probably not a bad idea if you're training first thing in the morning to at least have some whey uh, or, or some, some protein source. All right. Uh, so the next one is... Uh, does Eric Helms consider vertical pressing to be a must exercise for bodybuilders for developing the shoulders since all presses hit the front delt or they could get away with chest presses and lots of rear and mid delt training? Yeah, I think the kind of the assumption there is that a, a vertical press only trains the front delt since therefore it's equivalent to any other press, but a properly done uh, vertical press is actually going to hit all three heads of the delts. Yeah, it'll be a little more dominant towards the anterior, but anterior. But like if you're doing a uh, you know a seated dumbbell press with your back straight and you're actually keeping your arms pretty far back in external rotation, uh, you're going to have a fair amount of medial delt activation. Um, and uh, same thing with a little bit of rear delt. Same thing if you're doing a barbell press. Uh, and you're actually, you know, getting your head through the keyhole and pressing up and behind you. Um, so I think um, barbell presses and and dumbbell presses and overhead pressing are definitely one of the recommended movements that I would have in almost every bodybuilder's program, unless there was an injury contraindication or or um, a lack of mobility or, or something that, that prevented them from doing it. Um, you can definitely get away with not doing it. 
Um, that's the cool thing about bodybuilding is you can be creative. You can find a, a way to, to progressively overload any tissue. Uh, you could do front raises, lateral raises, and rear delt raises and um, only do flies. But uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I do think if you can do an overhead press safely, it should definitely be a staple uh, in your program. Um, there's no reason not. And it's very difficult to – it takes time, let me put it this way, for someone to effectively do – you know, a lateral raise, um, because there is, uh, I said lateral raise, not Siri. Apologies. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, performing lateral raises is something you will see most people in the gym just do wrong. Um, you know, they, they're really easy at the bottom and hard at the top. And when you see movements like that, where you're at a biomechanical advantage, that's super distinct like that. Another example is a row where it's super easy out here and gets harder and harder as you get close to you. That's when you see cheating. Um, so lateral raises become these kind of drop things right at the top, um, you know, uh, rows the same thing. And when you see the convergence of the, the, the peak tension point and the hardest point uh, happening, that's when you see movements get less effective, in my opinion. Like when you're in the most contracted position in, in the lateral delt, that's when you're going to be cheating the most. And in in when it's at its peak tension, you're actually cheating. So that, that's the case for both rows and lateral raises, and those are the, the most abused accessory movements for bodybuilding you typically see in the gym. Um, and I think that's probably one of those things that, that you don't think you're doing wrong, but you're not doing that great, and you could improve. And so if you're not overhead pressing, like, what's left? You know, you've got crappy lateral raises and bench. I, I don't expect good delts to be developed from that. So I think it's probably not a bad idea at all to have uh, overhead pressing if it, you can do it safely in your program as a staple. What, what do you think about the landmine press if someone couldn't press overhead? That's great. Um, the, I think that's basically um, if you can't press overhead, which is true for a lot of people. Like with my, I have actually have a neck injury that, that I only do very light and infrequent overhead pressing. Um, I like to use machines or light dumbbells with a full range and focusing more on the uh, the quality of the movement being super strict just to make sure my neck doesn't uh, get pissed. Uh, but anyway, the landmine press or let's say a very high incline neutral press are things I've used for people with, with shoulder injuries. And the downside to that is that basically uh, the further away you get from vertical, the more the less it's going to be targeting the medial delts and more more the anterior delt um, and, and, and an upper pec. But um, that doesn't mean that it's not a good replacement. Like yeah. it depends on what your purposes are. If your purpose is to build a super symmetrical, great muscular physique and get on stage, I would probably be like, yeah, landmine press is okay, but maybe you should be focusing on really high quality lateral raises and then just a more straightforward like incline bench or something like that. But if the person's goal is to be, you know, generally fit, then a landmine press is great because in real life, you're never forced into a position where you have to lift something directly over your head. You know, you're lifting things onto, onto like you're trying to create fitness, and and I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like you need to train your strength in the ranges of motion you have, uh, if your goal is 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 fitness for life versus, you know, symmetrical maximal muscular development everywhere or competing in strongman or, or CrossFit that requires strong overhead strength or something like that. So I think. Uh, look at the demands of, of, of the athlete or the, or the client. And uh, if there are no overhead pressing demands, landmine press is great. You know, you're allowing them to move in the, the closest thing possible in a safe way. 
Uh, and the same goes for any other variation. If the goal, like I'm assuming based on the question is as jacked as possible, then, then it might be slightly different. Yeah. All right. So maybe for the last question, because we're coming up to our time here, is uh, if someone wanted to learn more about you and what you do, where can they find you online? And also maybe like your social media and like any other projects you have coming out or anything else you want to plug on my show, you can do that right now. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. And uh, I would say the one-stop shop would be 3dmusclejourney.com. So that is the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. From there, uh, you can find links to the Muscle and Strength Pyramid, uh, my books along with Andy Morgan and Andrea Valdez on, honestly, my life's work as far as nutrition and training. Second edition's just launched. Uh, you can find the link to Mass, Monthly Applications and Strength Sport. Uh, that's myself, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and Greg Knuckles reviewing uh, basically nine pieces of work every month uh, related to uh, strength and physique athlete type of goals or recreational or competitive. Uh, and those are publications peer-reviewed that we are reviewing, both in uh, video and audio format and written articles. Um and you can find links to, and that's also where I write a blog every month for 3DMJ. And you can find the link to our podcast uh, where I'm on three-fifths of the episodes. So, um, yeah, it's a ton of information all there. So that's probably the best one-stop shop. And then uh, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. That's I'm not very active on any other social media platforms. So uh, that, that's, that's where if you want to see my nonsense on a daily basis. So Awesome. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 207 with Eric Helms. Hopefully you enjoyed that one as he can talk your ear off. These are the best guests where you give them one question and they ramble on for about 12 minutes. So if your question got answered, you're welcome. You might have learned a thing or two. And again, I'm going to say this at the end of every single episode, share, share, share this podcast with your friends and family so we can grow this thing as big as it can get on every single social platform out there. And I will be forever grateful until next time, you guys.